finding new ways to help the homeless. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. The state of California, which has the largest homeless population in the United States has just unveiled a new, very expensive proposal to essentially compel more people with psychiatric disorders and addictions into court ordered cases. This would include some medication and housing, but there's some questions about the proposal. Here to talk about that is Mary Thoreau. She's the senior vice president of the Independent Institute. She's also host of the documentary Beyond Homeless. Mary, first of all, what's your reaction to what California Governor Newsom is trying to do? Well, it's certainly a part of a big puzzle, but it's also something of a fire ready aim mandate. We need resources first, and then we can figure out how to get people to access those resources. Doesn't make sense though for the state of California to require in some capacity, some institution to have responsibility to make sure that people who, had, who need psychiatric care can actually get it as opposed to just being shuffled either into some sort of prison system or sent back out on the street. Well, there certainly need to be facilities and there are some people who are not capable of making the decision themselves to access care. Um, very limited uh, people who need that. But again, we need a whole range of resources available for people who are having mental illness problems and they simply do not currently exist. So we need to start with that. And let's start with if you had your wish list and let's first talk about priorities in terms of should this be a state issue? Should this be a county issue? Who would you prefer to tackle this? Well, really this is a problem. The homelessness problem as a whole cannot be solved by DC or Sacramento or even by City Hall. It really is a community wide problem. The more we've looked into places that have dealt with homeless problems successfully, we see that it's every part of their community working very effectively together, strategically, systemically to address the many, many individual causes that put people into homelessness in the first place and the many, many resources that are needed for those individuals to transform their lives and get out of homelessness. What are some of these specific tools? And let's just for argument's sake, let's assume that there is this sort of system wide efficiency that everybody's aiming for. What is it that, um, I mean, in terms of the first priority, in terms of these resources that could help a community in trying to figure out how to deal with this? Well, we don't have to assume it. Um, Our documentary Beyond Homeless Finding Hope actually has an extensive case study of where it has been achieved. Um, And that's in Bexar County, Texas, and they've been doing it for 11 years with remarkable success. Uh, The first step is to bring every sector of the community together. You need the business community, government, obviously you need community activists. You need all of the fire, police, EMS, and importantly, all of the nonprofits that are involved who are currently working mostly in silos. And they all need to come together, coordinate, develop a strategy, and then execute on that strategy. Um, And again, we have a very good model of it working extremely well that other communities could easily replicate. They just need to stop thinking, well, City Hall is gonna solve this or Sacramento is going to solve this. And understand that no, it's something that we all need to work together as a community to solve. And I get that breaking down the silos, even in a you know particular community, can be very challenging. But assuming that a community is able to break down the silos and you're able to bring all these um, people to the table uh, to deal with this, then what? What's the next step? Well, then you execute on it. So um, certainly in Bexar County, they did it as a campus-wide model. Uh, every nonprofit in the community offices there and provides resources there. Uh, the police are very integrated with it. It's a it's an independently run uh, organization that's 
therefore accountable to donors, to taxpayers, and to the community at large. There was an effort in San Francisco, I think in the last two years, a proposal to try to create something like 6,000 beds for homeless. I think San Francisco's now, I think a house about 3,700 people. Is that, a, is that a helpful start? In other words, for a city to say, look, these are the number of beds that we're gonna have built, regardless of you know the system in terms of keeping track of people and bringing all these shareholders together. Having that sort of goal, is that helpful? Well, beds alone is not going to solve the problem because all you do is put someone inside and they're still dealing with their problems. So you have to have the resources that address why they fell into homelessness in the first place. Otherwise, history shows that they usually just fall out of home, out of the housing back into the street. So it's a vicious circle. The other problem with starting with beds is so-called permanent supportive housing is incredibly expensive, especially here in California. I mean, it starts at $500,000 per unit, and some of these developments are going up to $900,000 a unit. So there's simply not enough resources for the 161,000 people in California experiencing homelessness. If you just do it with beds, it's $80 billion, and then you have nothing left to provide the services that they need to resolve their problems and stay housed and stay on track to live independently. You mentioned the 161,000 homeless as of, I guess, 2020, the last time there was a, a survey, I suppose, or analysis done. Has the, the reason for most homelessness, has that changed over the decades? Homelessness is incredibly individualized and people keep trying to make it a homogenous problem and it really isn't. There are as many reasons for becoming homeless, homeless as there are individuals who experience homelessness. And that's why you need a really individualized approach for it. A lot of it, yes, is rooted in childhood trauma, but there are lots of other causes, uh, being hospitalized as an adult. Um, certainly mental illness is, is a problem, economics is a problem. Uh, the cost of housing in California is a problem. All of these things are problems, but you can't just say, okay, it's just housing. So all we have to do is provide housing and the problem solved. It isn't. We have to deal with what, what's your story? What do you need to get out of homelessness? And have those resources available to each individual. Uh, 40 or 50 years ago, there was this sort of prevailing theory that a lot of homelessness was because I guess in the 1960s, early 70s, a lot of these psychiatric institutions across the United States, in part because of terrible living conditions were closed. And a lot of people who had a place or a campus or an institution to go to were suddenly on their own and out on the streets. Um, is that still a prevailing theme for a lot of people in that as well? There's just not enough psychiatric resources, psychiatric institutions for people to go to? So it's correct that in 1963, JFK closed down most state mental hospitals and it wasn't a bad decision. A lot of the state mental hospitals were not good places and we're not advocates for locking people up to make them better. The problem is that nothing was created to replace that. So people were left, were closed out of where they had been with nowhere to go and no services. It certainly is true today, continues to be true today that there are inadequate psychiatric services and there are inadequate range of psychiatric services available. And then you can deal with getting the motivations for getting people into those services. But we do not have adequate psychiatric care of any kind here. 
And whether it's trying to get adequate psychiatric care or simply trying to funnel resources in an efficient way and maybe identifying people and personalizing the resources for them. How much more complicated has it all become over the last two years because of the pandemic? I don't think the pandemic has made that in particular more complicated. Um, uh, they've done a lot of housing people in hotels over the years and that hasn't been a good experience. Um, it isolates people and we've seen a huge spike in overdoses in the period. Um, so that's not a good solution. But it's not really a complication for this. You can have congregate settings that are safe. Um, Haven for Hope in, in San Antonio, the model I was talking about in Texas, has continued to operate extremely effectively. Um, and they deal with mentally ill as well as every other issue behind homelessness and do so very well. For people who are not police or mental health workers or essentially in the field, so to speak, but are obviously aware of homelessness and want to do something. What are some of the lessons from say Texas that an ordinary citizen can draw upon as far as their own effort and their own life and their own community to try to make a difference? Yeah, I organize and try to outreach and get together with others. That's what we're trying to do with our film and initiative Beyond Homeless is to empower ordinary citizens to get together in their communities, engage with nonprofits, government, uh, again, EMS and so on, and start having these conversations of, hey, here's a model. How can we apply those lessons to our neighborhood, to our city, to our state and so on? And uh, individuals are incredibly powerful. Haven was the idea, the original idea of one person, but it only came to fruition because he then got together with the city, the county, uh, the the nonprofits, and the community organizers, and so on. So anybody can instigate it, but the important thing is to get together with your community to make it happen. And speaking of instigating, I mean, a lot of the media will have people believe in New York or Los Angeles that homelessness is horrible compared to how it was just a few years ago. That the streets are just rampant with people who are homeless. Has it really gotten that much worse, or is that just sort of a media misnomer? I'm afraid that in San Francisco, it is most certainly true. Um, I have spent a lot of time in the Tenderloin, which is kind of ground zero in San Francisco for where the homeless have traditionally sort of been shuttled. And I'm just amazed at how much worse it is now, um, which led the mayor about a month ago to declare the neighborhood to be an emergency. Uh, it's gotten extremely dystopian. And what, uh, so what caused that? Or is there a simple cause for or an explanation for that? Um, a lot of it is it's just been left unchecked. So people have gotten a lot more brazen about uh, open drug use. The fentanyl, certainly we've had a huge stream of fentanyl come in. And fentanyl is a horrible, horrible drug um, that's had a very negative impact on the whole scene. Um, but really, it's just a matter of we need to get in there and work with the individuals and, and help them. Mary Thoreau, she's the senior vice president for the Independent Institute. Again, the documentary is Beyond Homeless. Uh, Mary is the host of that. Um, and again, it's an important issue as we've heard in many cities. It is, a, as it is a growing problem and certainly a lot of people are more concerned about trying to find some creative ways to make our uh, communities more efficient in terms of how we tackle all this. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it and good luck to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
Could Russia's Vladimir Putin use tactical nuclear weapons? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. As the Russian invasion of Ukraine grinds on, and it does seem like Russian troops are in something of a quagmire. Good news for the Ukrainians and perhaps for the West that is supplying them. But there are some people in Washington and around the world who are actually losing a lot of sleep over whether Vladimir Putin might decide to stop just using artillery shells on civilian areas and escalate with weapons that are more powerful and dangerous like a nuclear weapon in order to send a message and perhaps force some sort of surrender from the Ukrainians. Here to talk about that is Matt Schwartz. He's a senior correspondent for Insider. He's written about this. Matt, first of all, um, your reaction to the war so far? Uh, it's terrible. I mean, I, I mean, I'm very far away from it, but I, some of the images and personal accounts that I've seen in red are you know, some of the most horrifying things that I've witnessed at a distance um, in my life. Uh, and I'm also unclear why it seems like it was a totally unnecessary and unprovoked decision by Russia to go and do this. Um, so the thing is uh, very sad and hard to see how it's gonna end well for anyone. I agree with you on all counts. But as far as the Ukraine's courage, the bravery, I suppose the surprise, I mean, they're putting up the kind of fight that even Vladimir Putin could not have expected. Um, are you surprised by that? Uh, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a military expert. It's clear the Russians were surprised, and it's clear this wasn't something they were prepared for. Um, it's clear that they had built up a force um that uh that was uh you know hadn't, you know, was was operating under the political assumption that they would be greeted as liberators and would be able to take Kiev quickly, and that uh, Putin underestimated the desire of even ethnic Russian, Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Those people still want an, an independent Ukraine, it seems. I mean, they've been, they've, they've been making that quite clear, and, it, and that was one of Vladimir uh, Putin's uh, assumptions going in. It appears that this would be a lot easier than it's turned out. There is this assessment among Western intelligence agencies that the Russians have a slightly different view about the use of a tactical nuclear weapon than the West would have. I wonder if you can expand on that. Sure. So when people talk about nuclear war, um, they usually think of like something like, you know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. The U.S. is the only country that used nukes. Um, hydrogen bombs that we have now are, are far more powerful than those bombs. Um, so people think of like these intercontinental ballistic missiles which is what we saw in Dr. Strangelove, which basically would herald the apocalypse. But there's actually a second class of nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons that are smaller, that can be used on the battlefield, um, that can be used to take out a military installation or an airport. Uh, and can be they're still nuclear weapons and they still have you know, radiation and other drastic effects. They've never actually been deployed in, uh, or they've been deployed in war, but they've never actually been used. Uh, and, that is, and, and, and Russia has a lot of them. They can be fired from artillery, from dropped from planes. Uh, they can be fired from submarines. Um, and this is something that Putin could conceivably do uh, to turn things around and show his seriousness. And that's even an option that's, that's officially recognized in some documents by Russian military doctrine, that if we're losing, we can use tactical nukes to turn things around for ourselves on the battlefield. And that's like an option we're serving for ourselves. And is it a stretch, therefore, that if Russia finds its current options are not working, uh, that the ground invasion, that the artillery, the uh, the rocket fire, the the bombs, traditional bombs dropped from aircraft, 
are not causing the Ukrainians to surrender, are not interrupting the supply lines. Is it that much of a stretch to think that, okay, maybe Russia then escalates and uses a tactical nuclear weapon to take out an area where the supply lines are bringing in things for the Ukrainian army or to take out a city and say, okay, uh, we've been bombing civilian areas with artillery fire. Now we're gonna increase um, the, the, the damage to you. It is time to surrender. Um, I don't think it's a stretch. It doesn't mean that he definitely will do it. Um, the doctrine is called escalate to de-escalate, uh, and Bill Burns, the CIA director, actually mentioned it in the um, worldwide threats hearing. I think I think yesterday. Um, so it's certainly one of the few uh, escalatory options that Putin has left that that still you know could potentially be appealing. And what would NATO do um, if it just happened on Ukrainian soil and there weren't any effects to any NATO ally? I mean, we've gotten every indication that that. NATO wouldn't necessarily do very much in response to that. Although it would, it would really be a global shock. I mean, it'd be the first time the nuclear weapon uh, has been has been used in war since since World War II. Do you think that's the right policy? In other words, I know that there are a lot of people in Washington who are gaming this out, and a lot of people in Brussels and NATO who are trying to figure this out. What happens if Vladimir Putin uses a tactical nuclear weapon? And if, let's suppose it is contained just to Ukraine, okay, maybe there's worldwide condemnation, but there's not a response in kind. Is that the right approach? Um, I mean, it's a really, really hard situation. Um, I think people have been trying to figure out, okay, how can we be certain that this won't escalate into World War III, into nuclear war? Um, there is no way to reduce that risk to zero so long as nuclear weapons exist. Uh, and I think so far, um, NATO has been very clear about what they won't do. And taking options off the table has been a means to attempt to de-escalate the conflict. Uh, and from, from where I sit, uh, that hasn't worked. Uh, and it doesn't mean that NATO should escalate, but I'm not sure that they should be so upfront about things that they won't do. Um, you know, in, in response to to a Russian escalation. A lot of people, when they hear the potential, even of uh, of tactical nuclear weapons being used by the Russians, think, oh my God, Vladimir Putin must just be crazy. But there's also this argument that it's not that he's insane, but that he is so shrewd um, that he just doesn't look at nuclear weapons with the same sort of horror uh, that the rest of the world does. Where do you come down in terms of Vladimir Putin's stability or sanity per se? I mean, I think any person who's a accumulated that amount of personal power and held on to it for that long is going to become a very strange uh, individual, you know, very different from you or me in terms of like how people around them respond to them, how much pushback are they getting, how much quality information are they getting. Um, we see this in the United States in a much, much, much smaller way with, you know, CEOs or, or you know, someone like Harvey Weinstein. Uh, power just makes people monstrous. Uh, now, is, is, is Putin insane? He's clearly presented a consistent, although abhorrent narrative about why he's doing this. Um, he's got his two imaginary people's republics, which he's recognized in the East. And he claims that he's conducting a, a limited military operation in order to defend them against potential Ukrainian aggression. So he, he's tried to be transparent and explain his justifications um, as, uh, as ridiculous as they sound to me. Um, so he's not, he's not just sort of, making this up as he goes along. He's just rationally pursuing a very, um, a very uh, unpalatable and horrific set of goals through, through even more horrific means at times as we saw today, you know, with the bombing of the hospital in Mariupol. You mentioned the escalate to de-escalate sort of doctrine, military policy or doctrine the Russians have. Is that widely shared and agreed upon within the Russian military? 
Uh, it's controversial. There are some U.S. analysts who say that it that it that it is a figment of the U.S. imagination. Mm. However, um, the U.S. officially did mention this doctrine in the Nuclear Posture Review uh, in 2019, and we did hear uh, the CIA Director Bill Burns, you know, who's a Biden guy, not a Trump guy, or was appointed by Biden, mention mention it yesterday. Um, so it, it's something that U.S. analysts uh, take seriously. Um, although it's it, it's hard to know um, exactly how the Russian military and, and, and Putin really thinks about their tactical nukes. It's hard to imagine that any battlefield commander would be authorized to use a, a weapon like that for the first again for the first time ever without without you know Vladimir Putin's. You see any sort of off ramp for Vladimir Putin? I mean, everybody tries to talk about, okay, what's the way that Vladimir Putin for himself can somehow save face, can say, okay, I've achieved, or can say to his people, we've achieved some of our goals. Um, we've done enough in Ukraine, it's time to withdraw. What does that look like? Uh, yeah, people say that there, you know, that there's a sort of this conventional wisdom that there's no off ramp for him. You know, I don't think it's very likely that you'll see a negotiated peace settlement, but I think the chances of that happening have risen from zero. To maybe like the low single digits percent chance, and the, the reason I say that is if you track Russia's demands over time, they've actually gotten a lot smaller um, as at the negotiating table uh, from the first to the second to the third round, and they're coming in. They're almost within arm's reach now of what of Zelensky and his party's position. Russia's asking for recognition of uh, these breakaways, the Crimea. Um, and they're asking for no NATO and no EU for Ukraine written into the Constitution. Now, the Constitution stuff, the EU thing, those are still blocks, but we're now in sort of the universe of stuff that Zelensky's talked about. The question is whether Russia's even negotiating in good faith, whether they would abide by a peace agreement, whether they're just going to these negotiations to buy time on the battlefield. Uh, and it's hard to know that, especially looking back at their conduct in Syria, um, whether this is just all a gambit or whether they're serious about peace. But I don't think it's impossible that you can see. A, a, a negotiated end to this in the short term, but I also don't think it's very likely. Uh, and the misinformation, of course, is uh, is remarkable. If you look at Russian media and what they are sort of reporting or being told, um, at a certain point, one would imagine that the number of Russian casualties will start to sort of filter back and people become aware. As far as the nuclear threat, tactical nuclear weapons, I would imagine that the United States and NATO have all sorts of satellite eyes. Uh, across the country, in other words, the West will know if, in fact, Vladimir Putin uses a tactical nuclear weapon. I assume, right? That's right. But it isn't hard. You know, I don't want to speculate too much, but it's very easy to imagine a scenario where Russia Russia says that it was Ukraine that used a tactical nuke, mm. and that, that Russia just is now has to respond with tactical nukes of its own. You know, because Russia has constantly been trying to drum up uh, the the myth that Ukraine has, you know, some kind of weapons of mass destruction. Um, so, uh, so you know, there might be confusion and, and, and competing narratives. I mean, they tried to do that before the invasion, but the U.S. intelligence community took those pretexts away. So they just invaded, you know, for the sake of invading because they didn't have a pretext. But I think if they used a tactical nuke, it would be tempting to, to sort of build an alternative storyline around it and their alternative reality. Yeah, certainly. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, they they said that it was Ukraine that was trying to acquire nuclear weapons just a couple of weeks ago, um, and the Russians were putting their forces, nuclear forces, on a higher level of alert in response to that. Um, well, it is a uh, frightening situation in all sorts of ways. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about how this ends? Oh, um, I mean, I don't know. It's hard not to be uh, to be pessimistic, I guess. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that could keep this going for a while. I mean, 
Finn has to deliver some kind of uh, victory or something he can sell as a victory. And I don't think the, the Ukrainians are going to start fighting anytime soon. A couple of big questions in my mind are whether Putin would be content with some of Ukraine or whether he needs to have all of it, and also whether he would consider Kiev to be negotiable. If there's any universe where he would recognize or accept a Zelensky-led government in Kiev, you know, and 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 you know, is that possible? Is that compatible with ending the war in any universe in his view or not? And, and I just I just don't know. Matt Schwartz is a senior correspondent with Insider. Matt, good of you to join us. Thanks for doing this. Oh, sure. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. Anytime. You got it. And on behalf of Gina Kim, Asher Cofield, and Craig Lowry, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.